Greetings, programs. Hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie-by-minute podcast about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. I'm your host, Duncan Shields. This is Minute 14, and with me today is my nimble, accurate, empathetic, and focused guest, co-host Adam Sternborn from Core World News. Uh, Excellent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you back. I'm glad you could make it. Glad to be here. Uh, We've got a minute 14 here, so... Minute 14, we get to go down to Laser Bay 2. We finally get to see Laser Bay 2. That was not a that was not a, a tease from the elevator button. That's exactly where <laughs> we're going. And uh, we get to see this amazing Laser Bay, and we get introduced to Laura, and we get introduced to Dr. Walter Gibbs. Yep. Okay, we see Laser Bay 2, and this was all shot at Lawrence Livermore Laser Lab in Livermore, California. Hmm. And... It's all for real. This is an actual laser facility. Yeah. The giant white structure that we see was a linear accelerator at the time. (laughs) And according to the Lawrence Livermore Laser Lab website, they're still igniting the world's largest and high-energy laser called the National Ignition Facility. (laughs) I think it's such a great (laughs) name. That's like a name for a a progressive rock band from the late 80s or something. (laughs) Totally. And Tron's the only movie that was ever allowed to film a feature film inside the building. They were hmm. the, the first and last. They're funded by the National Nuclear Energy Security Administration, and they're a key element of that organization's stockpile stewardship program plan to maintain the reliability and safety of the U.S. nuclear deterrent without full-scale testing. <laughs> like... Wow. What does that sentence even mean? I'm so like, I can only yeah. imagine the stuff that happens behind closed doors in that in that building. Yeah, sounds like a lot of people going home and saying, "How how was your work today? It was good. What happened? Can't talk about it. Cannot talk about it. Nope, not yep. at all." I remember I uh, I worked with a guy that did audio engineering for the government, and uh, he said. You know, I said, oh, I, I used to work uh, for the government for some audio projects. And I was like, oh, well, jokingly, oh, did you ever work on anything that you can't tell me about? LOL. <laughs> and he said, yes. Yeah. And I said, oh, OK, well, that was a short conversation. Then. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was going to say my wife's uh, my wife's grandfather worked uh, for um, Howard Hughes uh, and worked apparently in the rocket department, but was never able to say what he did uh, for the longest time. And my my uh, wife always remember going to his office and playing around with these, what she thought were like planes, but were just models of rockets. And uh, and it was very interesting. It was very much like, what's what, what are you working on? Nothing. We're working on on planes. Wow, literally working for Howard Hughes. That's fantastic. Yep. Yeah, yeah, super cool. Uh, the Livermore, uh, the Livermore Labs are also going for clean, safe, carbon-free energy through inert, inter, what is this? Intertial fusion energy. All right. I don't know if that's a typo. I might have written that down wrong. <laughs> but their goal being to focus the intense energy of 1,982 giant laser beams on a BB-sized target filled with hydrogen fuel fusing the hydrogen atoms nuclei and releasing many times more energy than it took to initiate the fusion reaction. So what, what could, could go, go wrong? wrong? <laughs> what could possibly yeah. go wrong? 
they're also they're also dedicated to furthering the fields of astrophysics, material sciences, particle physics, and X-ray and neutron science. And they mostly focus on lasers, though. Hmm. Laser power plants, laser defense, laser energy, high energy density science applications like radiography, isotope-specific assaying, imaging detection and precision optical components for different sponsors and missions, including spacecraft. Like, I just can't even wow. imagine the, the amount of national secrets kicking around inside that building. Over right. Because the they're still going. Yeah. They still, they still, they're still going strong. And uh, they've been, they were going for a long time before 1982, and they're still going now. So, yeah. And considering all that, it's it's amazing that they let a, a film crew in there to tape. Like, just, just, it's, it's, it's really unbelievable. They must have just been, you can film here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In this specific place and give us a couple of days to clear out everything that you're not allowed to see. Right, because I imagine even the even the linear transporter at the time must have been fairly high high end. Well, almost a national secret in itself, I guess. I, I don't know how many linear laser accelerators were kicking around at the time. Yeah, not many. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think. Now they they focus there. They've got the seven wonders of uh, of the Lawrence Livermore uh, Laser lab, Laboratory. They've got laser glass, hmm. which is a phosphate glass that contains neo neodymium atoms that amplify the laser light to very high energies. They've got optical switches called plasma electrode pockle cells that were invented by LLNL. They rotate the polarization of a laser beam when voltage is applied across the crystal. You have pre-amplifier modules. This is the facility's master oscillator. Generates a low energy laser pulse ranging from a hundred trillionths to twenty-five billionths of a second long, hmm. depending on the needs of the experiment. And that's carried and split to forty-five preamplifier modules for beam conditioning and shaping. And then they increase that energy by a factor of ten billion. And then those are used to intensify the edges, remove hot spots and dark spots, and make sure that they hit the target with maximum ignition efficiency. And then they've got deformable mirrors, hmm. 192 deformable mirrors for 192 lasers. And they can be computer-controlled to focus the lasers to 100 microns or smaller. And they've got these rapid-growth crystals. They're grown from single crystals of dihydrogen phosphate and deteriorated KDP, huge prisms, basically, like hmm. prisms the size of uh, a desk that transmit, refract, rotate polarity, and convert frequencies, like oven-sized crystals. <laughs> and then their computer control system, because all of the lasers need to arrive within 10 trillionths of a second of each other to be aligned and be aligned within half the diameter of a, of a human hair at the right frequency and energy level. Wow. It's like 66,000 control points are needed. So 2,000 computers running 3.5 million lines of code make it all possible. Wow, and then there's the target fabrification, target fabrication, the targets that hit, get hit by the laser. A lot of them they can't be bigger than a hundred nanometers, and they experience temperatures greater than the sun and pressures like in the core of Jupiter, and they need to be they have the smoothness of one nanometer. That's like removing everything on the planet Earth that's taller than two hundred feet. Wow. So there's a lot of really really wild stuff in there. It's like yeah. Star Trek in there. Yeah. You know, when they talk about reversing the polarity and, and focusing everything through the main deflector dish, I bet you there's <laughs> actual 
actual yeah. sentences like being said for real yeah. inside the the Lawrence Livermore yeah uh, this is the, facility there yeah. this is what gets us there I guess right this is this is the this is what gets us to Star Trek getting us to disrupting things and, and and putting it into a spaceship but it's it's kind of incredible when you think about this stuff just happening in places all over you know I I, I live um, just south of Boston. Uh, so you know, MIT is is you know about forty minutes away, and they're doing very similar stuff there. Just, just this giant. I, I would just sit there because I used to live you know five miles away, and just be like, wow, there's there's some people just doing some crazy stuff with lasers right now that could just go horribly wrong or horribly right. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine if you ever see like a a blue glow on the horizon or something, <laughs> yep. you must be like, well, yeah, let's leave yep. right now. See you later. Let's see if we can outrun a black hole. <laughs> yeah. 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 I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they actually gave it a shot. Like what they do yeah. in this movie, I imagine yeah. they might actually have tried to, to do oh, I that. Bet. Oh, I'm sure. It sounds like it. Right. So we pan down the laser structure and a voice says, Dr. Decker, report to Laser Bay 2. And I... I'm a, as a big fan of Blade Runner, I like to think that it's an ode to Blade Runner. I had that. the like same... Like saying Dr. Deckard. But, yeah. Uh, I had the same question. I, I caught that and I had to kind of go back on it a few times. It pro- it's probably impossible because Blade Runner and Tron were in production at the same time and they came out... Let's see. Blade Runner came out on June the 25th and Tron came out on July the 9th. Right. So that's but, just a couple. It's just a couple weeks. So it's probably just a just a coincidence. It could be, and it could be. It could also be. I mean, they were both probably in production at the same time. Uh, Decker does come from the the short story, the name, so they probably knew that character. So I, you know, oh yeah, and it was so, a, yeah, because I had the same thought. I'm like, well, they they came out in the same the same year, same summer, in fact. And I'm like, it, you know, would it have been too close. And I'm like, I wonder if they knew each other on different, you know, if they were kind of sharing people across production or if they read you know do uh you know do android stream of electric sheep and then saw that knew the character be deckard and just threw it in there or it's just a wild coincidence <laughs> yeah if it's a wild coincidence but it's, it was a popular story so and there's yeah. probably lots of science fiction fans working on it and sid mead did do the production design for both blade runner mm. and tron mm. so, so you never know yeah never that would know. be that would be, a, that would be a pretty sweet easter egg if that turned out to actually be yeah, be a thing. And one of the lab-coded scientists says, "Hi, Doctor Gibbs." Mm-hmm. And then we see some shots of the guts of a laser, and it pans down to an actual laser. Now, this is this is a really cool thing about the movie is that this is a for real, for real laser. It's not a prop. This mm. is an actual laser at the at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories. And do you know what it's called? I have no idea. I didn't even know it was a real laser. <laughs> It's a real laser, and it's called Shiva. Oh wow, that's awesome! <laughs> the, the, the god, the goddess of mm-hmm. creation and destruction. The laser's name is actually named Shiva. Oh, that's perfect. That you couldn't ask for anything better. Yeah. No, no. And then Doctor Gibbs places a little orange in front of the laser, and then we see uh, a nice young lady scientist at a terminal, mm-hmm. and Doctor Gibbs turns up the laser to a precise amount. As the younger scientist types stuff into her computer, she types SysDat 1039 matter transform sequence. Uh, I wonder what they're going to transform the orange into. Hmm. Transform sequence. It's interesting. Now, Dr. Walter Gibbs is portrayed by Barnard Hughes, who the cast often refers to as Barney. Barney Hughes. Hmm. 
also famous for being the grandpa in Lost Boys and hating all the damn vampires at the end. <laughs> yep. And he had uh, a great turn in Midnight Cowboy as a man that tries to pick up John Voight. Now, yes. he passed away in 2006 at the age of 90, 104 acting credits on IMDb. He was really good at comedy. Like, uh, he was yeah. in Sister Act 2, yep. Doc Hollywood, lots yep. of TV, like The Love Boat, All in the Family, The Bob Newhart Show, and even back on The Phil Silvers Show in, like, 1958 and Car 54, Where Are You, mm. in 1962. Longtime character actor. He's been yep. in lots of stuff you've seen as that older, classy gentleman, but he's also got a great deadpan. He's yeah. won a Tony on Broadway, and his middle name is, one of his middle names is literally Aloysius. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, oh, it's fantastic. Played a ton <laughs> of Shakespeare, and in the beginning, he says that there wasn't a basement in New York that he didn't work in. <laughs> that he didn't make a lot of money in his theater days, but he worked all the time. That's funny. He's, uh, he's a great face. He, every time, he's one of those guys, you see his face, you're like, oh, this guy. Yeah. Yeah, my wife, when we were watching it, was like, oh, that's the grandfather from... And she kept, like, thinking, trying to figure out what it was. And I was just waiting, because she's a huge Lost Boys fan. So I was just waiting for it to, like, to click. Yeah. And it, it finally got there. I'm like, yes. I mean, he was my, my, like, Hollywood grandfather growing up. Like, I watched Tron all the time. I watched The Lost Boys. And I don't know why, but Doc Hollywood was, like... It was on in our house a lot. And I don't quite know why, but I've seen that movie quite a bit as a kid. And so... Just, oh, was, wild. Interesting. I couldn't tell you why. For some reason, I don't know. If, it's just one of those rare movies that probably all four of us could agree on at, at a time where it was just like there was something for <laughs> sure. everyone. And I just kept pretending I was watching Back to the Future when I was watching it. And then I was just kind of happy in the background. But uh, just he was yeah. he, he was in so many movies like he was that that were on in, you know, the Stern household. So he just I just always have a warm feeling when I see him come on the on the you know onto the screen. Yeah, he really exudes that that warmth. He's yeah. got such a kind, kind face, but he's also got the ability to say stuff like all the damn, damn vampires, vampires. And, yeah. <laughs> and commit to it as, you know, he's got an edge to him. Oh, yeah. Sells it. Now, uh, Cindy, uh, Cindy Morgan is the, mm -hmm. the actor that plays Laura, but it's a little, I was a little uh, in the actual movie credits and in like the making of Tron book that I have and on IMDb, she's simply Laura. Mm-hmm. And I, ha I had to go into the novel to find out that her full name is Dr. Laura Baines. Hmm. And I, I thought that was a, a little a little disrespectful because she's portrayed as someone that knows what she's doing. Right. She's a no-nonsense straight shooter. And she doesn't even get a last name in the movie. I know. You know? Yeah. Oh, like yeah. One thing, one thing that could have... It's, it's, I thought that was... That's just reminiscent of... Uh, of back then, I think. I think so too. Yeah, it's very, very eighties that that everyone gets a full name except for the woman, even though she is, you know, like you said, she is one of the the main brains of the movie. Yeah, and you get that in a lot of. Uh, I like. I've been listening to a lot of other movie by minute podcasts, and when they go through old movies, this happens a lot. the The woman character is called teacher. Mm hmm. You know, yeah. like they're lucky if they they're lucky if they get an if their character gets an actual name, let yep. alone a first and last name. And right. I'm like, this is so, and she's supposed to be the one that was helping to develop this laser. Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. she's not a small part. Uh, one thing that could have changed this whole role was that Debbie Harry was really interested in the part. Huh. She, Interesting. She really wanted to to be it. Yeah, yeah. She uh, she hadn't really acted outside of music videos and a few low budget films. Yeah, and they screen tested her, so it wasn't really a, a fit. 
what they want they they wanted Michelle Pfeiffer who was uh, uh, not really a big name at the time right uh, but she'd just been cast in Grease 2 uh, okay. which came yep. out just uh, just a few weeks before Tron didn't do it didn't do that well Grease no. 2 no nope <laughs> Uh, Cindy Morgan was born Cindy Ann Sichorsky, came from an all-girl Catholic school and wanted to be an audio engineer like hmm. her father. She got accepted into the Illinois Institute of Technology, but instead got work as a DJ. And hmm. she got uh, a little screwed over at a radio station, being paid less and treated badly, so she did some automotive modeling lying on the hoods of cars and reckoned she had what it took to be an actor and moved to LA and she got a job as an Irish spring soap girl on a national commercial and then ended up in Caddyshack Yep, with Chevy Chase, Bill Murray and Rodney Dangerfield and Ted Knight and that was Harold Ramis's first film I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. directing and she talks a little bit about how at the time uh, drugs were thought of as good for you and that people started dying quite soon after Caddyshack was finished. Yeah. Because um, like that had that whole crew, that whole SNL crew on it. Uh, and she played uh, uh, a sort of a sexy woman character named Lacey Underall. Mm-hmm. And it was just a, a cheesecake part, but she had the, the looks for it. Yep. And apparently one of, the, one of the producers kept trying to get her to pose for Playboy. And mm. she kept saying no, because she was an Irish spring actor and that the Irish Spring people wouldn't go for it and her agent wasn't really defending her so she fired him yeah and the producer kept hounding her eventually telling her that she was uh never going to work again in the business if she didn't do it and she stood up for herself and brought it to the direct brought it to the attention of Harold Ramis and the director of photography and her fellow actors and they all respected her for it and they eventually the producer backed off, but she was left off all of the promotional material for Caddyshack and didn't work for a year before wow. auditioning for Tron. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's and, a. Uh, unfortunately, seems like a you know a somewhat you know common story from the eighties and and nineties and two thousands and so on. But uh, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's impressive that she was able to stand up for herself, especially then, and that uh, other people sounded like had her back and and. Um, you know, she got blacklisted, which happens a lot, but luckily it wasn't a long one. She was able to come back to do this and, and have kind of a, a, you know, as much as she doesn't have a last name, it's a very strong role. Yeah, you see it you see it a lot back then. And then with the, with the Me Too movement these days, it's yep. still super relevant. That mm-hmm. It just needs to be, you got to fight for it. you got to stand up for it. And it, it shouldn't be that way, but it, it does, it needs to be that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you need to stand up for yourself to yep. get recognition. And I wish, I wish it wasn't like that. Me too. You hear, yeah, you get you hear stories like this all the time. Yep. Oh yeah. So in her first, but in her first audition for Tron, she read with Jeff Bridges, mm-hmm. and then she got called up to a Disney executive's office after the reading, and he asked her what her political affiliations were, and she said, "None. I don't have any." <laughs> and then she got hired. <laughs> so all I right. think they were they were worried that she was going to get on a soapbox somewhere and. Uh, anti-publicity for the for the film or I'm not sure but sure. I thought that was an interesting interesting uh, are you a Democrat you're a Republican uh, what are your, what are your affiliations he's like oh, yeah nothing I don't think I don't think about politics it's like okay you're hired yeah so she's done a lot of TV and TV movies mm-hmm. over the years the last one was in 1995 before doing some voiceover work in the Tron 2.0 video game and some shorts 
And in all the behind the scenes videos I've seen, she seems really nice, super nice and super smart and very and outspoken. That 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 backbone is still totally there, and she's she's got that fire in her still, and that's good. Nice. I wish good. she had I wish she had more of a career. I think there was some. I think we were cheated out of a lot more really good performances. Agreed. It's funny to think a movie that was so big in my childhood. I always assumed, you know, everyone went on to to big things, you know, just because you kind of think that it has this mythical thing. And, and so when I was kind of going through her, um, you know, her IMDb, I was it made me sad for the similar reason. Like she was so good. She's such a big part of my childhood. And then just see her kind of, you know, she worked. She definitely worked, but she she should have been bigger. The uh, they the two characters talk for a bit, and Barnard mm-hmm. Hughes does a really nice turn as a. The dotty, eccentric professor type of yep. character, which he does, uh, he does really well. I don't. I wonder if he ever played a lot more scientists. I've all, he, I know he played a lot of patriarchs, but I don't know if he ever played a lot of eccentric scientists before or after this one because he's perfect for it. He's he really, so good. He's really good at it. Yeah. And then we go over the the differences between the novel and the screenplay mm-hmm. um, in the novel it's mentioned that Dr. Walter Gibbs started NCOM in his garage 30 years ago mm-hmm. and that Dr. Laura Baines is his deputy team leader and colleague an acknowledged leader in her field and recognized internationally so she just finished her postgraduate studies and I guess it's I mean it is kind of a Christmas Jones thing yep. like she's you know 24 and a deputy team leader at the Lawrence Livermore National Ignition Facility. Sure. You're like, okay, she's either the smartest person on planet Earth or this is a bit of a stretch. Right. Um, But she'd been occasionally forced to battle to be accepted for her intellectual accomplishments, but never twice with the same person. She Hmm. tended to be grave, efficient, and intent when working, but was cordial to those who shared her enthusiasm. I like. I really like that description of her. Me too. Yeah, it matches kind of what my, uh, you know, what my headcanon about her always was growing up, and as as you know, growing into uh, adulthood, it always seemed like a very strong, strong person. Yeah. And one thing I like about the movie itself is that she's portrayed that way. Yes. She is not portrayed as well. What does this do? Like she is yep. really portrayed as the one in charge and she she does have direct questions for the male leads and she she isn't uh she isn't given a lot of you know sort of cheesecakey parts or camera shots yep. or long long lingering shots or anything like right. that. right yeah in the screenplay she's got she's a young dark-haired uh woman she's got darker hair and it's the same with dr walter gibbs he's got uh He's got dark eyes and dark hair. Mm. Hmm. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, she has dark hair, and he has dark eyes. But in the movie, she's got blonde hair, and he has blue eyes. Oh, and they make a thing about his uh, copper bracelets. Huh. In the in the book, he's wearing copper bracelets above his digital watch uh, calculator wristwatch. Mm-hmm. And uh, but they don't they don't have that in the movie, so they must have just left that out. I think because in the thing, one of the doctors there is called uh, Doctor Copper, and he's got copper bracelets on too. So I think maybe copper bracelets were a thing that was 
maybe big in the 60s or 70s that was still hanging around in the 80s maybe so you get a lot of these older used to be hippies still wearing (laughs) copper bracelets maybe i'm not sure I'd buy it. It's funny. It's 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 probably one of those things that's kind of lost to history, but that that seems logical. I'd I'd see that happening. Yeah, I remember a lot of elemental magic yeah. Yeah. being talked about in uh, in the late seventies. You know, like yes. Keep your keep your fruit under a pyramid shape, and it'll stay fresh longer. Okay. Things like uh, that. You're like, ah, I don't know. Yep. Oh yeah. Probably not true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that takes us to the end of this minute. Um, uh, where can people find more of you if they want to hear more of your stuff? Uh, Core World News is where to find us, uh, and you can do that. Uh, that's the name of our podcast. Anywhere podcasts are found, that's all of our social media and uh, our Gmail account as well. So we're pretty uh, easy to find. Just type it in, and you'll you'll find us. Nice, excellent. And if you want to get in touch with us, check out more at tronologicallyspeaking.com or on Twitter at tronologicallyspeaking. Send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com. Or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking Tron Minute by Minute Listeners page. Uh, shout out to Pond5 for the music. And thanks to the Star Wars Minute, as always. Thanks to the creators. They started it. They're very, and instead of just keeping it for themselves, they were like, come on, everybody, join in. Uh, if you go over to moviesbyminute.com, you'll see all of the ones that have been done so far, or most of the ones that have been done so far. I think at last count, there was 140, mm-hmm. and there's more coming. So if your movie isn't there, think about starting it up yourself. It's a lovely, lovely way to to explore and do a deep dive on something that you love. Well, I think that brings us to the end here. Do you want to try a little end of line on three? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. We'll try it again. (laughs) All right. One, two, three. End End of of line. line.